Hi, I'm Andrew Whitfield-Cook. At FX Medicine, we strive to be clinically relevant for you. So please get in touch with us if there's a topic you'd like us to explore or a specific expert you'd like us to interview. You can email info at fxmedicine.com.au or contact us via Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. FX Medicine. I'm Andrew Whitfield-Cook. Joining us on the line today is Associate Professor Olivia Dean, who's currently Director of Impact Trials within the Centre for Innovations in Mental and Physical Health and Clinical Treatments, IMPACT, and an R.D. Wright NHMRC Biomedical Career Development Fellow at Deakin Uni. There's a mouthful. She holds honorary appointments with the Florey Institute of Neuroscience and Mental Health, University of Melbourne, and Barwon Health. Olivia has established a solid track record with over 100 publications and several successful grants totaling over $8 million. Dr. Dean is committed to providing better treatment outcomes for people with mental disorders and is actively involved in ensuring her research reaches community forums and outcomes and are directly translated into clinical practice. Welcome to FX Medicine. Olivia Dean, how are you? Good. Thanks very much for having me. It is my honour. When I first heard about this trial that we will t- be talking about today called the NICE trial, it's not nice, but let's first go into a little bit of your work. Um, that was a heck of a mouthful. What do you do at Impact Trials? Sure. Unfortunately, most of the things we do need a lot of explanation, and so <laughs> they come with quite long titles. Uh, it's the nature of research, I think. <laughs> we like to be all-inclusive. Yeah. Um, But the crux of what we're doing really is about looking for new therapies for people with psychiatric disorders because we know that the current therapies, while effective, um, they often leave a shortfall in recovery. So we're looking at ways that we can enhance current therapies um, by adding in new things, especially around nutraceuticals and repurposing medications um, to improve outcomes for people with psychiatric disorders. Let's investigate that repurposing of medications. You know, when you get a, um, you know, an authorised use for a medicine, for a pharmacological agent, it takes a heck of a lot of off-label use first and then the groundswell of research starts to take place. But there's a long lag time between um, when it's used off-label for something, then it gains success, then it gains um, some research notoriety and then it's accepted by government. How long does that sort of slow wheel of medicine take? Sure. I mean, that process takes years um, to actually get an agent from discovery into something like the PBS listing, for example. Um, But our approach actually harnesses a a shortcut that I think is is beneficial. And so instead of thinking about it as the, the long process to actually having an approved agent, we think about it the other way in that these agents are already approved for some indications, safety and tolerability is well established, and then we can use them for off-label or other indications, as you suggest. Um, so instead of having to start with a potential molecule and then spend millions and millions of mm. dollars developing it and doing preclinical and, and first in humans, trials, and all these sorts of things that takes 15 years to even 
identify a candidate, we're fast-forwarding the whole process by using drugs or medications that are already established and available and seeing if we can reuse some of their mechanisms of action for psychiatric purposes. With regards to nutrients and nutraceuticals, you know, normally... Um, I don't know about particularly with psychiatry, but certainly with orthodox medicine, there's this scepticism that that simply doesn't work and that the effects are placebo. How do you engage with health professionals to say, look, it really does have a um, a research basis and there really is some sort of premise, at least a um, proof of concept? I think, unfortunately, um, there has been a... um an issue with the quality and the composition of a lot of the nutraceuticals that are available at the moment. There are very few regulations required in terms of having to prove what is in the bottle is in the bottle, Um, whereas in medications, obviously, that is regulated quite strongly. Um, When it comes to nutraceuticals, that's not always the case. And so I think what that's led to is a mistrust between um, medical clinicians and the nutraceutical world because there, while there may be benefits in some of these nutraceuticals, there are so many um, agents out there that may be misrepresenting what they're offering that there's a lot of skepticism. So I think that there's a, a twofold approach that we can do to change things. The first one is to provide rigorous scientific evidence for nutraceuticals that have been tested and proven to be what they say they are. So, for example, we're running a study looking at the uh, a fruit extract um, and we've done some benchmark testing to at least show that what we um, believe is going on in this extract is actually in the extract and that we, we can then replicate that down the track. And I think really that's what clinicians are looking for is replicated science yeah. to back up some of these claims. The other thing I think that's going to be really important is the changes in regulations required by nutraceutical companies to actually meet some of these regulations. With regards to that reproducibility, you know, this is one of the issues I think that supplement manufacturers have in putting forward or putting up the the money to prove that their vitamin, you know, B3 has an effect on skin cancer, for, for um, example, because Company X does the research. Company X puts up the millions and millions of dollars required to get the, you know, phase three multi-center trials done. And company Y then says, thanks very much. My B3 is the same. Now, I guess that's a little bit different when you're talking about fruit and herb extracts, because you might be able to nuance those to a uh, you know, an intellectual property, dare I say that word. But, but um, how do you cover that sort of thing about patenting? Sure. So from the, I guess, you know, from the drug development side of of things, it's been one of the issues that we're having in drug discovery and psychiatry in that there are very few targets available to patent from. So there's a lot of repurposing of analogs and those sorts of things, but really there is nothing new in the pipeline. Um, And as you said, if you do the discovery work for a particular indication for something that's generic, then anyone can then go and market that. Um, So it's problematic to get investment into that. But on the flip side, it does mean that if we can show that there's a a valid scientific application, then at least translation into clinical practice can be straightforward. So it's it's sort of two sides of the coin. We, We can't make a commercial 
application here. We can't make money or, or those sorts of things, but we can at least have an agent that is readily available to everyone. And we, as scientists, can provide that scientific evidence to back up some of those claims. So for me, I'm not as concerned about the lack of commercialization opportunities because I just want people to be able to get these medications or yeah. these nutraceuticals. Do you think there's a reasonable call then to, for scientific institutions to you know, ask, implore um, for funding for not one, but multiple you know, supplement manufacturers to say, put into a pool which you can draw off and, and we can uh, then you know, benefit all of you if you want? Absolutely. I think that would be ideal and, and I would be more than happy to be involved in discussions around that. I think um, what it will ultimately come back to though is what does the company get back if they're going to invest into a group pool yeah. um, because of things like IP and patents and those sorts of things. Um, and and the other thing is is that unfortunately there is little incentive for some companies to invest because they can market their product without scientific evidence. Mm. So if you have a situation where you can push a product for a particular indication without having to do millions and millions of dollars of R&D research, uh, of R&D, then you're going to probably do that. Yeah. So when, when you say without scientific evidence, though, I mean, companies are required to have a, you know, a, at least a backup of, of science to say it's useful for this. You can't just say it's useful for that when it's not. That, you know, for instance, um, you know, vitamin B3 for nerve health or something. There's got to be the, some background research on that, but you can't um, then claim that it's been proven to cure, uh, you know, XYZ condition. Um, because you haven't done the millions and millions of dollars to uh, for the licensing of that. Is that is that what you're saying? Yeah, so that's it. So I think a lot of the um, the ways around those, that issue at the moment, at least from the company perspective, would be to claim things that you can't prove, like um, this drug will improve wellness or this drug will improve um, well-being. Well-being is a really popular one at the moment because you don't actually need to provide claims um, evidence. Isn't that dictated have, by the TGA, though? Uh, that is absolutely dictated by the TGA, um, but there's a grey area between what's considered a, a proper health supplement and yeah. what's considered a food supplement. Uh, <laughs> and so, I think we've got—I don't think we've got enough time to get into the complexities of. <laughs> so, despite the TGA being really the 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 premier um, legislative body. Um, for the quality of, of supplements, there's still a long way to go. Absolutely. And then there are limitations on, on the things that they can regulate. And obviously, if you're if a company is making specific claims, they need to be backed up by evidence and the TGA will look into that. Yeah, cool. So let's look at this trial that we're talking about today, the NICE trial. What's the trial acronym for and where did it first start from? Sure. So... NICE is N-ICE, which is actually a um, amalgamation of N-acetylcysteine for ICE. Um, N-acetylcysteine is an amino acid and a medication that's been used for decades. It's most commonly known as the antidote to paracetamol overdose. So if you take too much paracetamol, you go into uh, emergency and they will give you N-acetylcysteine or NAT to fix you. Mm -hmm. um, the pathways that it um, works on in liver, uh, in the liver, in terms of paracetamol overdose, are involved in what we think is going on in addiction. But there's actually a 
series of other mechanisms that NAC actually um, has that we think might be useful for methamphetamine or ice addiction. Right. So you're talking there, obviously, um, a reward system, which is commonly the, the issue with, you know, the addiction to ice, but also an, as an antioxidant. Is that right? That's it. So um, if we take a step right back to where this story first started, mm. NAC's been used for some time in our hands as an adjunctive therapy for psychiatric disorders. We found it to be beneficial for predominant uh, for affective disorders and schizophrenia. Um, and in parallel with our research line, there were, were several groups around the world looking at it for its potential um, for addiction applications because of the um, mechanisms around glutamate, which I'll get to. So. What we did was we were working with NAC for a variety of reasons. There was a lot of this evidence coming out of the addictions world as well as preclinical evidence showing that NAC works on not only as an antioxidant, which we're well aware of, um, but has significant effects on the glutamatergic pathways. And that in preclinical models, if you interrupted addiction models with NAC, you could see changes in glutamatergic pathways that would lead to reductions in craving. Um, And so we... Putting all of that together, Rebecca McKeaton from Curtin University approached us and, and she has a um, long-standing history in substance um, use research, uh, came to us and said, I think this would be really useful as a treatment for methamphetamine or ice dependence. Would you be interested in running a study? Um, and that's really where the study um, came from. Um, and from then... We have received an HNMRC funding to actually conduct a clinical trial. Um, And in parallel, we've been keeping an eye on the preclinical literature to find more and more ways that we can support what we think is going on clinically. So coming back to the reward pathway, the theory is in addiction is that there are, that in the case of ICE, the methamphetamine changes the glutamate pathways through interactions between dopamine and glutamate, and that's because methamphetamine induces um, floods of dopamine release, and this interacts with the glutamatergic pathways, ultimately leading to changes in the reward pathway in the nucleus accumbens. And what that means is, is that for people who have become dependent on ice, their brains have changed in such a way that they crave and require the methamphetamine to dampen the receptors screaming out for um, the, sorry, screaming out for the need for the drug yeah. and then dampening the, the craving pathways. So coming back full circle, if we can give people NAC, we may be able to reset the glutamatergic pathways and this may in turn reset their craving desires and that will reset their behaviour and hopefully that will get them off ice. Yeah. Can, can I clear something in my mind? When you have something like a drug, like ice, flooding the brain, the dopaminergic receptors in the nucleus accumbens being affected, are we talking about the drug causing damage to the receptors so therefore they don't work, so therefore subsequent um, release of dopamine by, you know, endogenous means just doesn't have any effect? Or are you talking about an upregulation of receptors so that the low amounts that the normally body produces just aren't enough? 
So there's a twofold effect that's going on here. The increase in dopamine release that is caused by methamphetamine use, which is the part that we're looking for to get high, um, it, it will cause a damage to dopamine receptors over time because they're overworked effectively. Yep. Yep. And this causes two problems. It upregulates the amount of dopamine receptors that may be available, so there's more dopamine receptors. Um, and it also creates a sensitivity in those receptors. So you've got a situation where dopamine is coming into the system. It's it's excessive dopamine, which is great in terms of getting high, um, but the system has to compensate for that in, in several ways. And it does that by upregulation of receptors and um uh, changes in their receptor profile. And what that right. ultimately leads to is downstream changes in systems biology. So not it's not just at the receptor phase. This actually causes um, negative feedback loops with things like the glutamate system that's expecting normal um, dopamine transmission to tell it how to regulate things like craving and, and those sorts of things. And when that system and those receptors are so far um, changed from their usually usual regulatory pattern, mm. the um, normal physiology can no longer occur, and that's why you get this shift. Um, and there's a shift not only in the dopamine receptors in in the frontal cortex and in the nucleus accumbens, but these changes in the glutamatergic pathways seem to be fixed. So even when you take away the drug, those changes. Um, remain over time and they need to be reset and that's why there is so such high level of relapse in people that have come off a, a drug, any drug, but, but including methamphetamine, um, the withdrawal of the drug doesn't instantly reset the system. And so there's a time and a, um, a change factor that needs to happen to try and reset that system. Um, and unfortunately, that can take years, and that's why people have such high rates of relapse. Right. Okay. So that was, I think, my next question was, can can normal receptor function be restored? And what you're saying is possibly over time, but it takes years, not months or weeks. Absolutely. So there are – and the other thing, too, is is that addiction isn't just a biological activity. You know, it's a yeah. combination of a biological activity and a behavioral one. Yeah. Um, so I think if you withdraw a drug, there are immediate benefits that you're going to see in terms of both biology and behavior. Um, but there are changes that you can expect that will take quite a long time too. So for instance, you might see that in the early stages of methamphetamine withdrawal, um, obviously, after they've gone through the initial withdrawal, that that people might feel that their irritability and their paranoia may be reduced immediately because you've actually withdrawn the drug. Mm. Um, but their cravings and their willingness to want to keep taking the drug will take some time to change because those are more downstream pathways. Yeah, and this goes back to social support and and why they they had that that need to try that drug in the first place. Yeah. Absolutely, and that's one of the key points that we're making about the NICE trial and NAC in particular is that at the moment there is no substitution for um, methamphetamine as there is in other um, indications. There is some work in using dexamphetamine, um, but that's been problematic in itself and it's not, from what I've been told by clinicians, an ideal option. Mm. So. Having a medication that people could take immediately um, 
when they feel like they want to stop methamphetamine is, I think, really important, but it's always going to be part of a bigger picture of social support, behavioural and lifestyle changes, um, and, and a revision of where you want it to be in your life and, and how you might change that. And it sounds very simple, but oh, obviously no. it's very complicated. Oh, absolutely. Um, <laughs> and, and as you touched on, the complexities of people's lives that drive them to drug use generally don't just magically go away because they've decided to change their drug use. Yeah. Can, um, can I ask about ice addiction and, and the realities of how quickly it becomes addictive. I have been told, I am not an expert in this whatsoever, I have been told that it's basically one hit and, and you're, you're ice, you're, you're now its slave. Is that actually true or is that more myth? Look, I think it's not that black and white and I wouldn't want to commit to a, an answer that says, oh, no, absolutely not, or oh, no, absolutely yes. I don't think it's that straightforward. What I can say, though, is that we have seen, in at least in the literature, that one dose will make brain changes. Right. So if you take one dose of methamphetamine, you can see that it will actually have a long-term consequence on your brain. Um, whether or not that directly leads to an addiction, you just can't make gotcha. that connection. It's, it's of just the, not that straightforward. Yeah, because of the whole you know, purpose for what they took it for, the social support mechanisms around them. and So there's a, a whole web surrounding that. Um, and also just the inherent biology behavior. of the individual. Yeah. So some people, um, some people have receptor profiles that can tolerate higher levels of drug use before they become significantly altered than others, and that's just a, a factor of genetics and biology. You know, you can't pick that. Okay, gotcha. So pharmacodynamics and and uh, drug metabolism. Is there any action of N-acetylcysteine on on these? Um, yes, is the short answer. So we know that an acetylcysteine or NAC directly um, interacts with the glutamatergic levels, so like levels of glutamate in the brain through the cysteine glutamate exchanger. Um, we also know that NAC has direct effects on dopaminergic transmission um, and also has a role through its antioxidant capacity in things like mopping up quinones, which also has an effect on dopaminergic transmission. Um, in terms of a direct synergy and um, how we're going to actually look at, um, for instance, is NAC going to block dopaminergic receptors so that you're not going to get a high? No, that's not, not what we're postulating. What we are postulating is that NAC will work um, to uh, change that cysteine glutamate exchanger and that will regulate the glutamate levels, which will hopefully then regulate the system and have a downstream effect on craving. Um, the trial itself is actually looking at decreased use, so it's not a, it, yeah. it's not pinning everything on the fact that people have to stop. It's about decreasing their cravings and hopefully decreasing their use. Yeah. And what about mitigating some of the um, other side effects of the use of ice, like, um, say, hypothermia? Sure. So I can't really comment on hypothermia, although there has been some um, animal work that's shown that there is an interaction there between um, NAC and hypothermia. But one of the really interesting things that I think might be useful for people with methamphetamine um, taking NAC is that we've shown that it may actually improve symptoms for people with schizophrenia. And so there may uh. be an interaction between the um, 
psychotic effects of methamphetamine and the anti um I don't want to say antipsychotic effects because we haven't actually shown that, but mm. there may be some control of schizophrenia-like symptoms in people uh, who are taking methamphetamine. Right. Well, certainly useful anyway. I mean, given, given um, you know, an at-risk population, I mean, that's certainly worthwhile. Absolutely. And it has a relatively low side effect profile. So I think that makes it easy to tolerate and easy to take. Um, and, and that's going to increase the chances of someone actually taking it. Well, let's go into that. Compliance issues. Um, you know, you've got somebody addicted to methamphetamines. How do you, I can't say the word ensure, how do you improve compliance issues given that N-acetylcysteine does not take like a fruit jello lolly? Um, so I think there's a lot of misconception and definitely a high amount of stigma about methamphetamine users. People don't really understand that a lot of users actually don't want to be using the drug anymore and that they're falling into a trap where they really can't get out. And what we're finding, at least in my experience recruiting for this trial, is that the people that are coming to us generally fall into two categories, and this is a very much a generalization. Mm. They've either tried what's out there, which is detox and rehab, and they've found that that wasn't sufficient to actually make the changes that they needed to make. Um, or they're wanting to go into um, detox or rehab, and they're finding the wait lists are too long. So oh, right. Really, what I hope that this will provide is a stopgap. So this will be, NAC will be provided to people basically as soon as they decide that they want to get off meth. And then then all of the other things will fall into place as well. Um, you know, that this wouldn't be a standalone treatment, but it would provide an immediate option for people that wanted to stop taking methamphetamine. Because I think that really is important that when you reach the point where you want to stop you can't wait six weeks to get on to some waiting list and then finally get into somewhere. Yeah. You need to, to have an action plan that day, yep. in that moment. That's right. Um, and I think NAC will be really useful. If it's found to be positive, it'll be really useful in that respect. Yeah. Because people do want to get off the drug. They do want, they, you know, they don't want to be running around psychotic. Um and having an option that will be immediate, I think, will be really useful. Mm, absolutely. So it really is like a mes rescue medication, as you first mentioned, with paracetamol overdose, um, something that you can use now and can have an effect quickly as a, a let's call it a Band-Aid, until they can uh, get into the detox um, programs. Yeah, that would be how I would say it would work over the long term. And obviously, hopefully, the, the time to get into uh, rehabilitation programs is shortened, um, but by the time they get there, their knack has actually started to take effect. So they're going into their programs with a head start on on changing their craving pathways, gotcha. which I think hopefully will actually reduce the amount of relapse further down the track. Yeah. And, and what about delivery of NAC? Um, we're talking about grams, obviously. Yep. So this study is using, uh, from memory, 2,800 milligrams a day. Um, and that's provided as capsules. Um, and people basically um, have had no issue with tolerating it or with taking it. They're normal-sized capsules. There's, there's nothing sort of unusual about the intervention. Um, and we found that people generally who are on the study have completed the 12 weeks of the trial because 
they have a commitment to getting off the methamphetamine. So mm. it's mm. actually been fairly good in terms of participant retention um, and definitely very high and number of people wanting to come in. So recruitment has been really quite rapid because there's such a high need out there. That was one of my questions. Like I had prejudged this group of patients being sort of reticent about enrolling into a a trial because of the legal implications of, you know, being found out and all that sort of thing. But you're saying the reticence is actually, the compliance is actually really high. The um, engagement with these patients is something that they actually want to do. Um, so it's a total, I, I'm totally and utterly misjudged this group of patients. Yeah, and I think I think people do misjudge ICE users generally, and I think that's got a lot to do with the media's portrayal of them. Unfortunately, the predominance of the people you see in the media are psychotic mm. and violent. Um, and that is absolutely the case for a lot of methamphetamine users, but it's not the case for all. And it's my, by no means the general case. So let's talk about the practicalities of the NICE trial. Um, recruitment has been completed or is still ongoing? No, recruitment's still ongoing and we are looking for more recruits. We're recruiting out of three centres, one in Wollongong, one in Melbourne and one in Geelong. Yep. Um, we plan to recruit until approximately the end of the year where we're hoping to have everyone we need in, involved. The study is placebo-controlled, so we've got 50% of the patients on uh, participants taking a placebo and 50% taking the active, um, but everyone gets a little flyer at the end to say where they can purchase NAC if they want to do that themselves later, which is something I think, again, is really useful about repurposing medications is that these are readily available so people can go and get them themselves. Okay. I know, I know I'm sort of re-digging up a, a TGA issue, but currently N-acetylcysteine in Australia isn't in capsules. It's in um, powder, at least in the supplemental form. Are you talking about a drug or a, a pharmaceutical availability? Yes. Right. So there is... Um, so... NAC falls into a very strange category. Mm, I know. One gram, one gram or less, it's considered a food supplement. At one gram or more, it's considered a medicine. Gotcha. So what we've found is that compounding pharmacists are quite happy to compound it. Um, and they'll compound it generally at 1,000 milligrams or less for capsule size. So that, that fits quite well. They don't need to worry about regulatory issues there, even though they're a compounding pharmacist, which would mean that would be fine. Yeah. Um, we have some... Um, nutraceutical companies that are selling it at doses less than one gram, so therefore it's being sold as a health supplement, um, and people can, can get it that way. And you can also import it for personal use over the internet. Yeah. So, um, which has a whole, <laughs> which has a whole issue of of uh, quality that <laughs> we've uh, we've discussed absolutely. previously. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, three centres. What about regional um, application or uh, regional participants in the trial? Well, I would consider Wollongong sort of regional. <laughs> sort of. <laughs> they'd, they'd hate and, you saying that. <laughs> and, well, I was going to say and Geelong, and I'm in Geelong. So All right. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> um, what, what, um, what about rolling this out to more regional areas, though? I mean, there's a huge issue in the country. Absolutely. Um, and I think, again, it comes back to the potential that this might have to actually make significant change because... Regional areas do have a paucity of services. They do have mm. um, long waiting lists and these sorts of things. If we can get NAC to them straight away, again, it's it's that stopgap. It's it's trying to put the Band-Aid on. And maybe that'll be enough to at least get people to 
be able to, you know, get by until they can actually get into formal uh, drug treatment. Um, or ultimately that there may be some synergistic approach where this drug is included in a online or a telehealth or, or um, something similar program where you're not required to actually physically go to a centre to have rehabilitation, but that can be offered to you online. Yeah. To me, that would be ideal. Absol- absolutely. That's definitely a pipe dream and, and nothing that I'm in, involved with at the moment in, in organising. Yeah, there's a lot of health um, reshuffling that needs to happen before then. I mean, you know, mental health is an area which is, is just in a sorry state of affairs and that's been rather publicly acknowledged. Um, I've seen rather recent uh, issues um, or examples of that where people just aren't getting the the support or care that they require. Now, I mean, I'm, I'm so excited. When I first found out about this, I thought, oh my goodness, this has the potential. It's not proven yet, but it has the potential to affect so many lives in a positive way. And we're not just talking about the people affected either. We're talking about the people that are affected by those who have methamphetamine addictions. It's It's brilliant. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, I think the stigma around mental illness is changing and I think that will um, lead to a change in service provision, hopefully. And I think, too, that it sounds really obvious to people in the field, but for too long, mental health was considered so separate to medicine. It just seems so ridiculous now. Um, so I think the fact that we've all agreed that the brain is part of the body will make some significant changes in terms of people's um, thinking around mental health and then hopefully the, the resources and the funding around that will will increase. The other thing to note on that too is unfortunately when we're talking about stigma, mental health or mental illness still carries a lot of stigma and then addiction is on yes. top of that. Yes, yeah. Um, so getting help to people that uh, often... Um, misunderstood and generalised in negative ways, I think is really important. Absolutely. I yearn for the day when it is no longer said it's all in your mind, but it's said it's in your mind and the rest of your body and we'll, we'll offer you support for that. Where can we find out more about this for practitioners and indeed patients who might be out there listening um, and, uh, you know, want to enrol in the trial? Sure. So we have a website, um, you can, I think you can Google NICE, but it is through the Curtin, um, accounts by Curtin University, so I'm sure you can find it through there. We also have, um, Curtin's put up a Facebook page um, called ah. NICE Trial, and I'm available on the Twitters uh, at the Dr. Olivia Dean handle, so you can contact us through a variety of ways. Otherwise, you can just contact, contact us directly through Impact, and, and we'll be in touch with you there. You are doing brilliant work, absolutely brilliant work. Olivia, thank you so much for taking us through the NICE trial today and explaining more about, indeed, dispelling some of the myths regarding those people that may be affected themselves by methamphetamine use and addiction and and offering them, hopefully, some secure in the future. Well done. Well, thanks very much. And I think it's really important that we get the message out there. So hopefully the trial's a success and we can make some changes. Yes, exactly. We'll put as much information and support material that we can up on the fxmedicine.com.au website. Thanks so much for joining us on FX Medicine today. Thank you. This is FX Medicine. I'm Andrew Whitfield-Cook. FX Medicine proudly supports the one-off seminar The Synergistic Application of Herbs and Celloids with Dan Jones and Dennis Stewart. 
to be held on Saturday the 29th of June 2019 in Sydney. For more information and to book your ticket, go to bioceuticals.com.au and click on the Education tab.